Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And today we wrap up chapter 2, section 1, that we have been slowly and intentionally considering who God is, our sovereign God and his wondrous attributes. And the chapter 2.1 ends with this sentence, he is also most just and terrifying in his judgments, hating all sin, and will by no means acquit the guilty. You know that this comes after last week's where he said he is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is also most just and terrifying in his judgments. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, speaks about God the judge with these words. Do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Speak to them of God as a father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite all our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You are on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy, but there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. I believe Packer is spot on there. The Bible presents God as righteous judge over and over. Just some examples. In Nehemiah 9, 32-33, Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, priests and prophets, fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just." You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. As Abraham intercedes for Sodom, the sin-filled city that God was about to destroy, he cries out, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Jephthah, in Judges, considering his ultimatum to the Ammonite invaders, declares, I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Amnon. Psalm 75 simply says, it is God who judges. And then in Psalm 82, 8, rise up, O God, judge of the earth. And Hebrews chapter 12, 23 says, God is the judge of all. So clearly the Bible says God is the judge, the righteous judge. He is most just and terrifying in his judgments. Consider a few things about what it means for God to be judge. Well, first, God has the authority to judge. Therefore, he is the rightful and only judge. He's our maker. He's our king. He has all authority. He is both lawgiver and judge. Uh, We are warned in the confession that God is most just 
and terrifying in his judgments, but the confession, let's note, does not say he is most just but terrible in his judgments. No, it says most just and terrifying. We have the mindset for some reason today that if God judges and punishes sin, then his character must be defective. But R.C. Sproul says the defect is in our reasoning. If we had judges in our criminal courts who never found anyone guilty or never punished sin, would we describe them as just or good? Of course not. God is the judge of all the earth and he does what is right. And as an all-powerful, holy, awesome, and righteous judge, to be judged by him can be terrifying. Hebrews 10, 30-31 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, we're told that the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so the confession is right to say he is most just and terrifying in his judgments. But he as righteous judge, his judgments are always right and true. The Bible throughout considers it an abomination when judges or kings have no interest in seeing what is right triumph over what is wicked. But God as judge is excellent. He will not stand for wickedness. He always judges what is right. You see, God cannot love goodness without hating evil. He is throughout eternally, passionately opposed to evil. And therefore, as righteous judge, as the confession says, he hates all sin. Proverbs 8, 13 through 14 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then he goes on to say, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. He hates sin as a righteous judge. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence, Psalm 5 says, verses 5 through 6. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The Lord abhors. As a righteous, holy judge, he hates all sin. And here's the implication. Because God hates sin, we too must hate sin. Romans 12 verse 9 says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Why? Why should we do that? Well, it's not so much to avoid judgment as that is only through the covering of Christ's righteousness that we will be covered, but it is to honor our judging king. If you and I are to grow in mortifying our sin and in loving what God loves and hating what God hates, which really is the essence of sanctification, to grow more and more, to love what God loves and hate what God hates, don't we need to know what God hates? It's revealed in the scripture, but Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 makes it pretty clear. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, 
Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Scripture is pretty clear. Those are the things the Lord hates. If we are to honor our righteous judge and king, we must grow in hating what God hates and loving what God loves. As all-wise and all-knowing judge, he also rightly discerns what is true and false. When the Bible pictures God judging, it emphasizes his omniscience, his all-knowing, his wisdom as the searcher of hearts and the finder of facts. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Because we know he's all wise and righteous, we can be confident that God is never part of a rash, foolish, impulsive action that's immoral and appropriate like humans when we fly off the rail. He's never an irritable, ignoble, self-righteous judge who makes judgments with sinister motives for wicked purposes. We can be confident of that. God is holy, and he is angry where anger is called for because of his holiness and his righteousness. Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? The answer is no. And he is morally perfect, and therefore he rightly discerns what is true and false, and he does it righteously. Also, as all-powerful judge, he has the power to execute the sentence. This is a little different. Uh, God is his own executioner. He, he writes law. You know, the branches of government in America don't apply to God. <laughs> he writes the law. He executes the law. He executes punishment. He is the governor. He is the king. And when you begin to think about the execution of his justice and righteousness, that is what we know as his wrath. Matthew 8.12 says the subjects of the kingdom who are not in the kingdom of God will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, Matthew 25 speaks also of this judgment of weeping and gnashing of teeth that for those who are not saints, Scripture makes clear that it is weeping that will come in the morning for them. But as we think about God's wrath as the execution of punishment as a manifestation of his justice, there's a really important clarification I think we have to make when we think about God's wrath. It's that you don't hear me speaking about wrath here as an attribute of God, but rather as a manifestation of the attribute of justice, as the attribute of righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson is so incredibly helpful here. He says this, Strictly speaking, wrath is not an attribute of God. For something to be an attribute of God, it has to be something that God exercises before all worlds. It would be more appropriate to say that the wrath of God is the manifestation of the holiness of God in the context of the sinfulness of man. So within the Trinitarian relationship, that holiness is expressed among the members of the Trinity. 
but not wrath. You see, the bottom line is this. An attribute of God must be something God is apart from his relationship to his creation. Since he is not angry or wrathful within the eternal Trinitarian relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, that's not his nature either. His divine essence is always full-on perfect love. And yet, do understand this, the manifestation of his justice and righteousness in his wrath serves the purpose of his love. Well, how could that be? It's because his love is richer for it because he bestows on his beloved in his wrath the blessing, the ultimate blessing of a sin-free world. You see, God's wrath is a manifestation of his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, but even a manifestation of his love. The confession closes in chapter 2.1 and it says, and he will by no means acquit the guilty. Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 through 3 says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He will take vengeance on his foes and maintain his wrath against his enemies. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds or the dust of his feet. Remember Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where the Lord revealed himself to Moses and It says, remember, he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but hear this. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The confession says very clearly that God will by no means clear the guilty. Please understand, believer in Jesus Christ, he has not merely cleared you. He doesn't do that. He redeemed and saved you. Only because of his grace, his mercy, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you does God justify us. But he does not remove the penalty of our guilt. Christ pays the penalty, the just penalty for our guilt. If he merely cleared us, he would be unjust. And so the Bible says he does not, will by no means acquit the guilty, but he does substitute in their place and pays the just penalty for the sins of his people. And so as we consider God's justice, righteousness, his judgments, hear Leon Morris from the biblical doctrine of judgment. The doctrine of final judgment stresses man's accountability and the certainty that justice will triumph finally over all the wrongs, which are part and parcel of life here and now. The former gives a dignity to the humblest action. The latter brings calmness and assurance to those in the thick of the battle. This doctrine gives meaning to life. The Christian view of judgment means that history moves to a goal. Judgment protects the idea of the triumph of God and of good. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, and finally. And it means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. And so what are we to do as sinners, 
facing the truth of God's judgment. Hide in the righteousness of Jesus. Rock of Ages, the great hymn, considers God's just judgment, and it offers us all the guidance we need to find refuge. I close our time reading these words. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And while I draw this fleeting breath, when I soar through tracks unknown, when I see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Thank you for joining another episode of Pillar and Ground.